James Miller, how you doing? I am doing well. Thank you so much for allowing me allowing me to be a guest on your show today. <laughs> I am uh, I'm beyond excited. I I uh, kind of bumped into you through my publicist uh, Dennis Welch when I wrote my book, and he said you got to get on this guy's show. You have to reach out to him. So you were gracious enough to have me on your show, and I tell you what. Um, since I've been on your show, so many amazing things has happened. Uh, your, your, your outreach. Um, and when I say this number, it's going to shock my listeners, but you have like 3.5 million, I mean, million people <laughs> that follow you on your lifeology journey. Um, and that, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You know, I'm so humbled by that. I once was on a, a guest on someone's show and like, James, how does that feel to have that many people uh, listen to you? And I was like, you know, it's, it's such an abstract number because when I'm in studio or I'm, I'm at home right now, but if, if you know, I don't see those people. And so obviously right. I could literally see them. It'd be a different story, but it is very humbling. And so I love to talk to, I get to meet so many people like you and just uh, hear people's story. And I just kind of get lost in the interview process. And then I'm like, oh yeah, other people are listening to that as well. <laughs> well, before we go any further, I owe you an apology. Huh? I swore twice on your show. Oh. <laughs> and I had to go back and watch it. And I'm going, I don't remember swearing. And I went back and I found the two words. Now this on my show, you're welcome to occasionally yeah, yeah. swear. That's fine. Yeah. But um, I do apologize for that. No, it's totally fine. Because you were in the moment, you were feeling it. And I was like, it's <laughs> so, it was obviously with my rating, it's a family rating. And so with that, those particular words, I still were able to meet under the, the G-rated version of it. So it was fine. So it wasn't. It wasn't well, fine. anyway, I, I owed you that before we started. Um, well, I, I have so many things to cover. And I know I have kind of a sweet spot I want to hit today and kind of tap into your psychotherapist background, your clinical experiences. Um, as I mentioned to you on, on your show, that I kind of feel like I have the life experiences, you know, dealing with not not that I'm the only one that has that, but dealing with the eight eight years of addiction that Seth went through, and then in, in my marriage, you know, dealing with that as well, and watching that crumble all within a you know, fairly short period of time. Yeah. Um, but what I lack is the is the clinical uh, evidence and the and the verbiage and mm -hmm. where that's that's your strength, and you and you, I'm sure you have life events as well that 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 help complement what you do. Um, let's go back a little bit and talk about your background. I, I noticed you had a private practice in DC area mm -hmm. and now you're in uh, sunny Florida. Yes, so tell me how you, how you made the jump from private practice to this lifeology. And I, I do want you to spend some time on, I love the, the term uh, lifeology. What a great way to encompass what you're trying to do, but how'd you make that jump and what was your kind of your wow moment? You know, ever since I was a child, I was just, I had a proclivity that people would just come and talk to me. Like my little friends would would come up to me and ask me questions and or tell me their their struggles, and it's always just a natural inclination for me. But the funny thing was, was I I wanted to be a musician, or I am a musician. But when I went to undergrad, I wanted to be a geneticist. I wanted to cure cancer, hmm. and I had all these this genetic background. And then from there, I got a really big music scholarship and transitioned into uh, to, to music. And then from there, I transitioned into psychology and Spanish with a music minor. So all over the place. Because we all have all have interests and I had quite a few. Uh, so with that, I, I took the easy way out, I suppose, when it came to graduate school. I decided to, instead of going to um, the new school and to do film and, and acting, because I did a lot of that when I was younger, I thought, well, let me do something to fall back on. So I decided to uh, go to graduate school to become a psychologist or psychotherapist. Did that. Um, and the older I became, I found that I was pretty good at it. Ironically, though, in my graduate school, except for one of my professors who was like a grandma to me, everyone thought 
I needed to change my career, my field. I wasn't good at it. I wouldn't be successful. Mm. And it was just this whole thing of James, you know, you're, you're not very serious about this, which maybe I wasn't, but they just didn't think I had the skills for it. So a couple years later, I don't think I've been too bad, but for me, when I was in private practice, uh, I was in for private practice, I think about 12, 13 years before mm -hmm. I decided to change. And so for me, it was all about, I enjoyed what I was doing, but I knew there was a calling on my life or something that was greater than what, where I currently was. Mm -hmm. The research states that, that everybody in their professional field will have five iterations or five versions of what that looks like. So I thought, okay, well, that would make sense. I'm now in the next version or going to create the next version of what that is. So for me to speak to people one-on-one -on -one or, or do group counseling or, or to do couples counseling, that was fine. And I enjoyed that. But at, at that time I was feeling restless and because I had a, mm -hmm. a lot of other, we all have a lot of talents, but for me, my talents just weren't being expressed the way that I wanted them to. So I thought, well, okay, I'm pretty much changing everything. So um, got to have a really, I got to have a relationship at that time. I, I was like, it's so expensive to live in the DC area. And I don't really yeah. <laughs> want to live here anymore. And just silly things kept happening as far as telling me it's time to go. So I have a really good friend that I was talking to. And he's like, well, James, why don't you come down to, to Florida? So I came down here and I thought, let me just try it out. So when I came down here, I absolutely loved it. But my goal was I wanted to be location independent and do whatever it is I was going to do wherever mm -hmm. I wanted to do it. And so when I was thinking about what are my skills and where would that all, all intersect into create something? So I was like, well, I actually interview people for a living. If you think about it, you know, psychology for... And I've been in the field for about 25 years now. So if I'm interviewing that many people, it's that's really what you're doing when you're talking to someone. So I'm interviewing, right. I like to be on camera, I talk a lot, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd like to do those things. So I was looking at the intersect um, and entertainment and that's how I created Lifeology. The thing was for me, I when I was younger, I always wanted to have my own TV show. So when I started Lifeology, my goal is always to have my TV show. So right. every day for six months, I was on the, on camera and I practiced my craft. And I thought, okay, well, I want to teach life lessons, which is what Lifeology does. So for six months, every single day, I would do um, I do an episode, a three to four minute episode. And if, if you see the first ones, it's pretty bad. The content's <laughs> good, but it's not inspiring at all. It's not obviously where I'm at today. So, uh, but I right. did it and because my goal was to be on camera. So in the future, when I did have my TV show, and we're about to film that right now, that I would be ready. So from there, I practiced and practiced and practiced. And then from there, or from a podcast to a radio show where I'm at now. And now we're, we'll be filming the TV show very soon. So that's kind of the iteration for me. And so, you know, I, I, I miss, I miss the private practice. So what I do is I still see some people now and again who want to consult with me. Um, so I do other consultation just for people's life in general. It's not life skills, right. it's more of a mentoring. And then I do for, I do some clinical work where I still have people call me for clinical consultation with, you know, other colleagues as well to get some background on that. And so that's kind of how it's, changed. And so I still do kind of dabble a bit, I suppose, in the psychology world, but I love what I do now. And it's like, like I said, gets me wonderful people like you. And, and it's just been a really wonderful time for me. Do you feel like you have enough time to do everything you want? That's a great question. I look at, uh, in fact, I just did a show yesterday about this as far as the time management. I reverse engineer everything. So if you see hmm. my phone, I literally have alarms that go off every random, <laughs> you know, every two minutes, three minutes, because it helps me stay on track. So right. I love downtime like we all do, but I also know when my downtime is going to be planned into my day. So I always reverse engineer everything. So for my day, it's, you know, for tomorrow is how I think about that. So what time yeah. am I going to start tomorrow? But in order to be successful for tomorrow, I have to think what time am I going to go to bed? So that allows me to have the amount of time I need to sleep. And then I reverse engineer and roll everything out. So do I have enough time? I make time. But I also know about self-care because if I don't have self-care, 
I'm not as effective as I want to be. So what's the point of doing something if you're not efficient or the efficacy rate is lower if, if you can't manage your time? So that's how I always just really keep myself on track. Like I said, it sounds very rigid. That's what works for me. No. Matter of fact, I didn't know that they call that reverse uh, engineering because that's how I work too. I've always, <laughs> I've always like when my son and I are going on a golf trip or something, I just start from leaving the hotel, coming home and I work my way backwards. Exactly. And I just didn't, I didn't know that was called like reverse engineering. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know there was a exactly. term for that. Exactly. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool to do that. So, yeah, for me, I like my alarms. I have those set at each time. Like this morning, um, I woke up at four o'clock this morning. It's a little, I usually wake up at five, but four o'clock, I was like, okay. But then I would roll out all my time, you know, so every time I was going to walk my dog, time I need to be back, time I need to go to the gym, et cetera. So that's kind of how my days are. And because we're all busy, but that's the technique that works for me to be able to get everything done. I have, I think you're, my second show out of four shows today that I'm doing have a lot more things to do and, and I'm, I love it. And so I, I find my energy through my work and that's, what's really important for me. And you embody the living undeterred, which is kind of a term I came up in my book. I, um, and I, I'm fairly certain I got you out a copy of the book, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, I didn't remember if I had, I've got so many mailing out all the time, but, yeah, yeah. um, the word undeterred was something, you know, when I played sports and when I was in school and I, I was an average student and, I had three brothers. So, you know, mom would throw food out and say, you know, here, food's, food's at five. If you are hungry, come here. I'm not going to reheat it or nothing. So it's like, you know, I had to be undeterred. I had, I had to fight, you know, and coming into the business, I, I slept a hundred, I worked a hundred hours a week, slept in my car. You know, there was no cell phones. We had whiteout for my typewriter in college. You know, I didn't have the internet, you know, I'm out trying to sell investments, which is a non-tangible, it's an intangible product. So I have to paint these pictures in people's heads of what retirement looked like to my friends who are 20 broke. You know, it, was, yeah. it was tough. It was really hard. So I learned resiliency. I learned how to be undeterred. But I did have enough credits in college to, I had a finance major, but to have kind of a psychology minor, I like to call it for lack of a term. I never officially got a psychology minor, but man, at my age now with what I've been through and even building up my practice, I, I use my psychology uh, minor hundred times more than I ever use my finance degree. That's amazing, and I, I find that most people do that because the more the more understanding you have of one's mind or the the, the motivation for why people do things. I mean, you can understand how to sell. I don't mean that in a minute. In a minute. Yeah, right, right. You understand how, right how they think. I more. studied a lot about people's relationships with money. And I coined this phrase financial hoarders. And these are people who are rich, older people, but they're miserable. They've, they've, the money became, it became quantity over quality and the money obsessed them so much that they became rich, old, miserable people. And so this was before my son died, before I had all my, my um, mm -hmm. you know, chaos in my life. And so I was already interested in behavioral economics and um, really interested in that whole world. And then all of a sudden these things happen and I started to follow the addiction and the alcoholism. And I thought, wow, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of overlap there between people with poor relationships with money, i.e. financial hoarders for me and people who are alcoholics. Um, you know, the, 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 um, the things they go through, uh, Sure. The um, the steps of addiction, the the uh, blaming other people for their problems, mm -hmm. um, the inability to actually let go and enjoy spending their money. Sure. And I see 
I see alcoholics and people who battle with this. I see my son when I go through and kind of reverse engineer what happened to Seth. I'm going to start using that term now every day <laughs> um, and, and try to peel back the layers, James, and figure out, you know, why did he think at that time, you know, October 4th, 2016, mm-hmm. that heroin in his arm was a decision? I'm not going to say it was good. But was a decision that he didn't have control over to say no. I'm just I, I'm just torturing myself on trying to figure out why. And one of the reasons I wanted to drag you on this show is that you have a a deep well of knowledge that that you can maybe help the listeners and help me try to understand what he may have been thinking. When someone is is actively in an addiction, they don't think logically. So everything you just said is very logical. Why would he do that? That's a logical question. But right. when you're in addiction, when someone's in an active, in their in an active addictive mode, they don't think logical. So even they can see something that's important to them. Let's say their their dog needs to be fed or something, and they see it. But when they're about to use or in that that mind, they're they're aware of it. But the empathy level isn't there to accomplish the responsibilities they have to have, or that awareness enough to say yes, this is my responsibility. Because everything goes back to that. The flood of dopamine, of serotonin, of whatever it is you're using, that that pleasure, that pleasure center, is so great that that's what allows them to to not be responsible for that or not make the healthiest choices because they're not in they're not in the quote right mind. They're in a, a hyper a hyper hypersensitive state of mind when it comes to how they feel, and so it's very sensory. And so when people mm-hmm. make those decisions or, or use uh, whatever it might be, it's because they want to be flooded with that emo- with those senses that's so great that life unfortunately doesn't give that to you because it can give it to you in small minute ways but to have that pleasure center be flooded with so much dopamine and so much serotonin it's it's there's unfortunately there's not a word for it or there's not a to my knowledge there's nothing in the natural state of mind that can give you that amount of dopamine or that hit of dopamine that great for that long period of time Hmm. So that's where a lot of people will do that. So that's why people turn to additional substances is because they get the instantaneous feeling of it where, you know, people, if we use gratitude, we use meditation, mindfulness, all those types of things can give you a long version of that. But when someone uses, they get the spike of that and that spike mm. is where they want to be. And then they feel it. And then whatever the drug is, then all of a sudden they come down. And because there's so much of that dopamine that's been like flooded in their brain, when they come down, all of a sudden it goes below the threshold. And that's where people have so much despair, so much loneliness, so much hopelessness because they're like, oh my gosh, the world is horrible because the, it, all, their body no longer makes that dopamine because it has to turn off because it's got too much. And so that's why you find the dysregulation of that. So if we obviously do the more uh, long lasting aspect of the healthier version of that sustains it where they, when someone uses a substance, it floods them so much that your body stops making it, they crash. And then that's why they want to use more, or keep using, more. Mm-hmm. So trying to get that feeling of so much of that dopamine that just hits the brain. But that's the more they use and it continues. That's why this, the addiction gets greater and greater because they can't, your body creates a tolerance. Now with heroin, it's different because the tolerance, it's, it doesn't last. It's, you have to be very careful with that because unfortunately when people use heroin, your body can, can lose the tolerance right away and go back down. So anytime someone uses the same amount a few days later, et cetera, then they're, unfortunately they're, there's an opportunity that they, they could overdose at that where the other, and, the other drugs, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just, go ahead. I was, no, I was saying I was, the other drugs were like cocaine or yeah. methamphetamines, anything like that. It's, you saw the, the risk of that, but it's, it, it, they're, they're all dangerous. I'll just say that. But the heroin of course is the one that can give you the long lasting aspect of it. But the come down is so, so intense. 
And we think that the based on the needle marks, needle marks they found on Seth, that he had just been dabbling with heroin. So he wasn't a heroin addict. Yeah. Um, the fentanyl killed him. Yeah. That's what killed him, not the heroin. And so, um, again, peeling back the layers, going all the way back to the fact, I think I told you this on, on your show, James, that he was labeled at 15 ADD, attention deficit disorder. And I have ADD as well. I, I'm fairly certain you do too. Um, <laughs> I think it helps anybody in any sure. endeavor that they, they partake in. Yeah. I mean, we're hyper-focused, you and I both are. And, um, and so once he got that label kind of stamped on his forehead, I think he looked at it as he was a cursed, like a werewolf that, you know, at certain times his ADD was a problem. Now, when I, my dad's a retired physician. My dad was a university of Iowa practicing physician. He was the team doctor for the Iowa basketball team for 30 years. Yeah. Lou Olson hired my dad back in the seventies. Wow. And so when I was younger, my dad told me ADD was a superpower. And I actually grew up, I actually grew up feeling sorry for kids that weren't hyper, you know? Really? And yeah. yeah. And so it's like, I always, my whole life, I've never looked at my ADD as a impediment. To me, it was, it was something that I had, the other kids didn't have. And I am sure, and you know what, was going to make sure I took advantage of it. So it, it helped me work a hundred hours a week. It helped me yeah. borrow money to stay in business. It helped me, mm -hmm. people tell me no and right in my face, you know, and I go to the next one, get another no, you know, just keep going. So Seth didn't look at it that way, James. He he viewed it differently. And I tried to present it to him as a positive, but he started, I noticed something you wrote. It's a really good article you wrote in January. I got off your website called Creating Self-Acceptance. And as I read that, I, I could see Seth sitting there and playing these things in his head. And I think your article you wrote, it's January 20th, uh, 2021 that was on your website that that really hit me pretty hard about the lack of self-acceptance the the um the issues he put on himself that he just couldn't get through and so he he um started abusing mm -hmm. and so for me it's like you know how, what can I do can I go and help the 38 year old housewife that has two bottles of white wine at night and she's an alcoholic probably not I don't know if that's where I want to spend my life, James, but can I get to the kid that's 14 or 13 and get into what I think I term prehabituation? Mm -hmm. you know, get into it before a habit. Yeah. Um, and I got that term from Patrick Moore. He's another gentleman that I would love to have you hook up with someday. Yeah. Um, he has a book right here called Prehab, and it's it's about um, risk response patterns. And he did a he did a study at Kennesaw State University with college students about trying to get stages, stage oh, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, before they get into rehab. So he called it prehabituation. So you could identify, you could identify risk response patterns in kids before they become alcoholics. And I, man, I read, I read the book and I'm like, this is awesome stuff. This is what I was looking for. Cause I, there's 14,000 treatment centers in the United States. It's like, I think we're just putting, I don't know if that's the aim, you know, I'm not sure how much help I can do to help those people, you know, and I, I kind of want to, yeah, go ahead. I'm, yeah. Prevention is always the key when it comes to things because, you know, it, it, prevention is anything, but prevention comes with awareness. When you're aware of something and you can put a name to something, that's where it removes the power from something. So whether it's addiction, whether it's, um, whether it's abuse, like substance abuse, that doesn't mean you're addicted. Yeah. To right. I mean, there's different lev levels of that. 
So knowing knowing where you are in that and just having that real, that honest talk with yourself, you know, I, I abuse alcohol, I abuse this, I abuse that. And, ha and having that awareness, uh, because many times people allow those situations and those thoughts to blackmail them. You know, mm. we, we don't realize that we don't, well, we do realize that we don't want people to know what we do in secret. You know, when, when the camera's off, everything's off, who am I? And so that's one thing I always ask myself as well, when no one's around, am I still James? Am I still the same person that shows up on camera on the radio? And you know, I, I, I'm sure there are blind spots that I have, we all have those, but it's so important to, to have, to ask yourself that question, who am I truly? And do I purport what I really believe? And so mm. when you're aware of those blind spots and say, yes, you know, I am struggling here, or perhaps last night I did something where I'm not proud of it, but instead of shaming yourself, you grow from it. So the question I always have people ask themselves is, what did I learn about myself? Or what am I learning about myself right now? Well, I'm learning that I'm, I struggled with alcohol last night, as an example, before an example. And so with that, well, then what was I trying to cover? Because it's always it's always a response. Hmm. People, we always have self-soothing behaviors. And I don't know if we talked about this before, but self-soothing behaviors are behaviors that allow us to soothe ourselves. And they're always based off of our five senses. But what most people don't realize is the five senses are based off of the default sense you use when you were a child. So for you, I can see you. You look like you're more sense of touch for the way you, I mean, use psychology here, the way you move your hands, et cetera. The way you think and the way you process is yours is a sense of touch. So as a child, I would have you go back when you were a child. And this is not, this is all science. This is not, <laughs> when you go back with science, um, and you, you would even probably look at your pictures. What was it? What were the things that calmed you? Uh, so when you use your five senses, you have your sense of taste, touch, um, smell. What am I missing there? Um, sight and hearing, obviously the main yeah. ones. So when you look at those, you want to say, well, as a child, which one did I, would I use all the time? Which one really soothed me? And so when we look at that, that's more than likely the default you have as an adult. Anyone has mm. an adult, as an adult. Mm. The problem is, is that when we use that, and we're not aware that it's really linked with our childhood aspect or child self-soothing, then we don't grow that version up. And so that's when we engage in unhealthy self-soothing behaviors based off of the five senses. And so that's something to say, okay, well, what is that primary sense that I've been using and now how do I make it in a healthy way? So the right. sense of touch, you know, as a child can be, you know, your, your blanket uh, being hugged, the uh, sense of taste can be your pacifier or the, the milk you were given or your juice box, whatever that might be. Sense yeah. of sight can be a TV show or the mobile above your bed. Um, the, the, the smell can be the smell of your mother's perfume or whatever that might be, but there's, there's all different aspects of what that is. And so when you can be aware of that, look where your deficit is as an adult that you're struggling with, more than likely linked with an unhealthy self-soothing behavior that was based off of the childhood template that you used, which was healthy. But as we grew up, we didn't grow that version of our self-soothing behavior up. All that to say, when it comes hmm. back to when people who use or use substances, a lot of that has to do with their inability to self-soothe. And so if they're struggling, this is a general, this is a general statement. It's right. Obviously to your son, because I never met him. But right. the general statement would be, when we're struggling and we don't know how to self-soothe, we will turn to something. So a sense of uh, if someone drinks, that could be their sense of taste. Um, that's, you know, that's the version of that. Um, the, the actual action itself, putting the glass down, becomes ritualistic, which is a sense of touch. So there's multiple reasons why people do things, but it's all linked back to a self-soothing behavior or the inability to self-soothe. And so when we struggle with that, but we will use the default sense we had when we were a child. And that's how it rolls out in addictions today. Hmm. Do you see a, a danger in, in labels, um, even labels such as alcoholic or addict or I mean, yeah. in a sense, aren't, aren't we all addicts? And quite honestly, yeah. um, I uh, did a class last year with uh, I think they were freshmen in high school with my son, Roman, talking about all this stuff. And I always start the class off by saying, uh, help me. Let's identify some addictions. 
and all these students are eager to help. So they jump in with alcohol, drugs. And, and I say, is telling the truth an addiction? Is honesty an addiction? Is good eating an addiction? Is, and so I'm, I shot off some positive addictions to try to get them to not think that the word addiction itself sure. isn't, but it, it, until I define it, I, I'm not really telling you anything. Sure. Because there are plenty of good addictions as well. Yeah. The negative and so, put on things, of course, determine. Yeah. That. And so the labels, I go back to ADD with Seth, you know, that's kind of the beginning of the downfall for him is when he didn't accept that as a, as a diagnosis or a, I guess, a, you know, a label for him and struggled with that. But let me ask you about coping mechanisms. You threw out a couple and I use meditation. Um, I meditated before you came on the show to calm me down, <laughs> to get me focused because <laughs> I'm really honored you're on my, my little tiny show out here in the, in the Midwest. Um, but you know, and I, I'm a big believer in stoicism as well. And I've read Ryan Holiday's summary of, 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 of stoicism. I, you and I never really got into spirituality, but I was just going to throw it out there and see you know, is that is spirituality and those type of things something that is a coping mechanism for you that gives you balance in your life? Or do you have other things that you use as a tool? Yeah, I, spirituality is something very big in my life. Um, I have a very strong faith in God, which is not spirituality. I mean, it is a form of spirituality. So for me, mm -hmm. I, I love it that everybody has... I, I encourage people to have some form of spirituality. It doesn't matter what what's what mine is is what anybody else is, but it's what works for them. So for me, it my is my relationship with God. And so I always break things down to one spirit, mind, and body. So for me, the spirit part is that cheerleader in you that when you can connect to something greater than yourself, that says, James, you're gonna do this. You don't know, you don't know what's gonna go on, you know, but this wasn't a surprise to your greater this was not a surprise to your greater power, your higher power rather. So just relax. It's gonna work out. Mm -hmm. it's, it may not work out the way you want it to work out, but there's a resolution. And so when you look for me, if I look back at my life, I look at all events like a jigsaw puzzle. When all the jig pu jigsaw puzzle pieces come together, that's who I am today. For better, for worse, I like who I am. Mm -hmm. So with that, I understand that okay, if things have worked out before, what's the likelihood they're not gonna work out for right now if I'm struggling with something? Often we have these myopic viewpoints of we get so um caught up in the, what's happening right now that we forget. We've experienced this before. I've experienced fear right. before. I've experienced heartache before. So what did I do that, that worked for me? And what did I do that didn't work for me? So let me just roll that out and do the same thing again or avoid the things that, that didn't work for me before. Because we often try and think we have to reinvent the wheel. And in reinventing the wheel, we lose, we lose the options of I'm going to get through this. And so that the confidence rather that we're going to get through this. So for me, yeah, I use my spirituality all the time. That's every morning I start my day. You know, the first half hour of my day is always something spiritual. And that's what I do. I always tell people how you start your day is indicative of how your day is going to go. So if I start my day in a mindful spiritual practice, I know that the next thing I'm going to do is going to dovetail off of that or it's going to create that that energy that I can now bring that same calmness or sense of sense of whatever into the next activity. And I keep doing that. So then I also check in with myself all the time. I always have an internal dialogue going because it allows me to censor, not in an unhealthy way, but asking myself, what am I learning about myself right now? Mm -hmm. Or what's my motivation for this right now? Why, why am I in the show right now? Why am I talking about this right now? That allows me to constantly have that narrative that keeps me in check to say, you don't have to talk just to talk. <laughs> Everybody can talk. Right. Just to talk you know? Right. But, but what are you saying? Is it is it encouraging? Is it is it helpful? Is it helping you? You know, myself. And that's something that's so important because our internal self talk is the most important thing that's going to help us through. So for me, I use my spirituality. I use my internal self talk. I use meditation, uh, guided imagery, 
Uh, hmm. I do a lot of things. I, I, I play the piano. So I, I play the piano a lot. And that's what really helps me um, kind of process things. We talked before um, when you were on my show the first time we, we had to redo it because I had to. Yeah. We talked about EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And what that's kind of cool, it's very cool because what it does for anyone who has any type of trauma or any type of something that creates a visceral response, it allows them to process it in a way that their body is able to, doesn't have that feeling. And, I, and then that's when you use the cognitive therapy to work through the, the emotions of it. But sometimes we link together the experience of how our body just you know can tremble and get overwhelmed, our heart rate increases, et cetera. And, but that we link that with our thoughts. So EMDR, hmm. what that does is it helps reduce the response of your body. So then you can actually have a conversation about it without it, without having all the internal under uh, the stuff that's the underbelly of the, of the trauma affecting you. So the whole point of me saying that with EMDR is when I play the piano, what I'm basically doing is I'm using both sides of my brain. So even when you're hmm. when you're typing as well, if someone's driving, you know, the slight movement in their hand of how they're moving, you know, the, the steering wheel or washing dishes, those types of things, when you use both sides of your brain, in other words, um, both hemispheres, so your brain's cut in half, split and left and right, that allows you to access both sides. So in a very basic way, your left side is a logical side and your right side is a creative side. Uh, more to it, but essentially you get the point. So to allow both sides to work together allows you to access your brain in a different way. So mm -hmm. when you when you move your hands or allow that to happen and allow your mind just to kind of roam free, then you'll notice that all of a sudden you're thinking about one thing and then like five minutes later, you're like, well, why am I thinking about it when I was a five-year-old boy? <laughs> you know, what, what mm -hmm. happens? So what happens is your body is zipping together all of those connections of how you process something or when you process something. So I said this in a very, very basic way that people who do EMDR, it's a, it's a much more, um, it's a lot more to it than that, but this is a very, very elementary way that I'm explaining this, but that's one way that I do it. So I recommend people check out EMDR. I'm yep. uh, experienced trauma or anything like that, but from a very practical standpoint, just allow yourself to just think just no censoring when you're doing something that, that allows you to use both hands um, at the same time or, or both, both sides of your brain at the same time. So when people run, it was very meditative for people. Uh, when people work out, it can be very, very meditative. So a lot, but when it comes to the repetitive pattern, that's where your mind can be free and, and to just really explore that. So I always recommend if someone's dealing with trauma to talk to someone about that, but on a daily basis, if you want to practice this, just allow your mind to be free as you're doing something that's more repetitive in behavior. And you'll see that it's, you'll start to feel better because it removes the visceral response that you have when you're struggling with something. Yeah, it reminds me of um, something I thought I heard you either say or write where you said 66 days, it takes something to become a habit. And so when I started meditation about a year after Seth died, I immediately thought, well, nothing's happening. You know, this is, I can, I can do this when I sleep. Yeah. And then I was trying to control my thoughts. And then I was trying not to control my thoughts, which is actually trying to control your thoughts. And finally, I use a guided meditation. I use Sam Harris. That's who I do mine with. And um, it's nice because it's uh, it allows me to really kind of separate um, your mind and body and, and be aware that thoughts and experiences are just that. They're just thoughts and experience. They literally don't exist. And if you can just observe them to come in and go, when you're in the store and somebody cuts in front of you, you just say, hey, this is going to come and go. Like you just said, this soon shall pass. Yeah, and so yeah. for, for me, meditation has been great. But the other thing I, I caught on a, on a podcast was this uh, embracing impermanence from a, from a standpoint that we say, you know, good times don't last forever. 
And you just said this, James, in a way, nor do the bad. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think for people going through trauma, Im- the idea of impermanence means that this is going to end too. Mm-hmm. My, my feelings of the pain I had when I got the call at 630 in the morning that they found my son dead. Now, this was before I even knew this stuff because I'm in a whole different realm of I'm a whole different realm of learning and knowledge now than I was before he died. But now I'm like, you know, these opportunities are presented to me as learning experiences. I'm not as punishment, uh, not, not as vindication, but as, as ways for me to say, okay, death came into my life on a platter and I need to embrace this opportunity knowing that now I know in hindsight that Seth's life was limited. Yeah. Well, so is mine. So is my other two boys, you know, so is my parents. And so that idea of death being an efficient teacher, you know, it's helped me deal with Seth's death, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying I don't, I don't have extremely depressive moments. I do. I mean, horrendous. You know, I considered suicide for a year after he died, Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't. And I don't know why. Um, But now I've got really good foundation built up Mm -hmm. that, that now when I have, opportunities presented to me. Like if I had a death happen today, I would know how to handle it. I, I wouldn't know how to handle it. So, you know, where am I going with this? I, I don't know, but I think, I think I'm just on this learning curve, you know, and I have so much to learn yeah. and in hearing how you present narratives to people to help them deal with some of the trauma and some of the anxiety of just being human. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, I, I think, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about your book. I haven't, I know you wrote about it. Yeah, I, I, I jumped, that's my ADD. I just, no, I, wanted to, I wanted to get to your book and I want to get to your TV show. Um, sure. So that's my segue into your book and TV show. Okay, well, let me let me say this. So when it just, well, thank you for sharing that with me. I, I love I love hearing your story and I love hearing about Seth. I mean, what a wonderful young man. When it comes to life, you're really, you're really, Jeff, you're really good at reframing. So I hear you when you, re, you told your kids, okay, you have an opportunity to, um, we can do going on the same path he did, or we can we can go on a journey together and move forward with this. Life always gives us opportunities. So when you think of a diamond, a diamond has so many facets. And our choice is our opportunity is to look at that diamond and say, well, huh, which facet of this do I want to look at? And if I constantly look at the same facet of a diamond, well, I'm going to see this, I'm going to get the same result because that's literally all I see. So in any situation, if if you don't like how you feel or it's overwhelming, then you ask yourself, well, how, how would James look at this? Or how would Jeff look at this? And mm-hmm. so when you use someone else's potential perspective of how they would look at it, that kind of tilts your mind a bit to shift that, that diamond. So you're like, oh, okay, well, that, that might be true. Because the whole point in changing one's opinion or one's feelings is to create doubt that maybe what I'm thinking isn't 100% true. Right. And it's funny, in, in, um, in the English language, the word belief let me back up. The, the antithesis or the, the antonym for the word belief is truth. In other words, the opposite. So we often think that I hmm. believe it's true. No, it's not. According to Interesting. the word, the opposite word for true is belief. So with that awareness right there, and all of a sudden it says, oh, I, I didn't know that. So if, I, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm so wedded to this, so my thoughts create my emotions, my emotions create my response. If I don't like the response or how I'm feeling, that means I need to change how I think about it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not something that happens like, oh, I'm now like 100% different. But it, what it does is it gives you the ability to say, if it's not 100% true, then what's that 1% that could be true? And so right. it allows a person to look at it in a different way. Because if we get stuck in a label or we get stuck in a trauma, and once again, there's a time and place to grieve, and I'm all for appropriate grief. That's wonderful. And then beyond that, then what do you do? 
because beyond right, right. that, life still life still goes on, and it's it's yep. very. I know that can sound really harsh, but life is like a current in a, in a river. It's going to move whether we want to move or not. So, what do you do? Do you swim down the river as fast as you go? Do you try and paddle backwards? And so you get to be that version of that swimmer in the current of life. And what do you do with it? So, my what I help people do is just kind of alter their their perception about something to say, well, if that's not true, what could be true? So, I help people create an opportunity to search for truth that makes sense for them, that's healthy for them. And so that's kind of segueing into my book. That's what my book is about as well. Um, I'm actually, I can't say too much. I mean, I can say about it, but but it boils down to um, my right now, the book has 32 chapters. And what it basically does is it, it gives you kind of like the articles you read on my website. What it does is you can look at anything you're struggling with. You don't have to read it like a you know linear, like a normal book. You, if you're struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with um, self-esteem, you're struggling with just how do you deal with your family, <laughs> all those things, it breaks it down so you can look at all the different aspects of one's life and say, okay, I don't know what to do, but I know there's a, I know there's a chapter in this book or in James's book that I can read that'll give me a good foundation. And then from there I can reset and I can go. Because my right. job isn't, tell you, isn't to tell you how to live your life. My job is to help you the job I've given myself is to help a person create a foundation and then they create their life based off of the foundation because we are all successful as we want to be. So life is, we're all self-made when it comes to, to life. And who so your book is, your book is kind of something that somebody doesn't have to read it in chronological order. Correct. They can pick and choose. Are you going to do an audio book? More than likely, I will. I'm actually I'm talking. Um, so I haven't. The book isn't published yet. So I'm, I'm talking with, uh, in fact, a literary agent today about something. Uh, so with that, that's that's great. But um, yeah, so I'll, I'll probably have an audiobook with it. Uh, lot, lots of things that are connected with it. Um, just like you, I, I think. <laughs> I think strategically. So I have a lot of strategic things that go along with it. I have a book series. I have child series, child, uh, children's books that I'm, I'm writing as well. So there's there's a lot going on uh, that I'm excited about. But with the book coming out, it will basically give someone the hope that there's always an answer and right and gives them a direction to say you know slow down take a look at this what if things were a little bit different and if that's the case then how would you react differently how would you show up differently and that just gives people once again the opportunity to say we always have a choice and in that choice we determine how we're going to feel and what we're going to do based off of how we look at something our perception Right. And that's exactly why my nonprofit's called the Choices Network, is I wanted it to be focusing on choices, you know, yeah. and not telling kids what not to do. I mean, look how well that helped when we were kids. Um, but to teach them, empower them how to think, you yeah. know, here's a situation. I'm not there. A kid's offering you a vape at a football game. How are you going to make that decision to make the correct one for you? Not for mom and dad but the correct one for you. Uh, so you also have a TV show coming out yes. and I'd like to have you talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. I know that was, that was a bucket list for you when you were a, a young, a young person and um, it looks like it's coming to fruition. So tell me a little bit about it. Well, it's kind of like the radio show. So it's called Lifeology with James Miller and some very, very similar. <laughs> Israel Lifeology Radio is, is, is so much. That's unique. Life. I know, right? Who's been about? Very creative. Uh, so, Lifeology Radio is obviously the radio show. Uh, but, uh, but under my umbrella with the TV show, what that's going to focus on is it's a little bit different. The direction this, this one goes, this one, I guess, kind of reviews is the tagline is we all, we all have life experiences and we may seem different, but our emotions are still the same. So, what I will do is I'll take specific. Specific, specific emotional constructs, in other words, grief, loneliness, isolation, um, 
even concepts like um, entrepreneurship or whatever it might be. So I have specific constructs or ideas that I use. And then I have someone who is different than what society would say was, quote, successful. Because I want hmm. people to really realize that we all have our own versions, our own stereotypes of what is what. So my show breaks down stereotypes and help people recognize that their neighbor whom they thought was different is not so different after all. Hmm. Because we are connected on an emotional standpoint. We all know what grief feels like. We all know what love feels like, rage, joy, bitterness, whatever it might be. We all know what that feels like. So my show really focuses on the emotional aspect of what someone experienced during something. And then through that, I just like in my normal um, radio show, I will ask questions to help really help the listeners understand what that's like. And then at the end, I will also have discussion points and discussion topics that I want families to talk about. Like, right. you know, what were some of those questions? What did you learn from this? You know, who do you know that that may be different, that may not be as different? So I really wanted to create a dialogue for people after they watch the, watch the show. So therefore, we can break down their stereotypes because as we know, life can be very divisive and society can be very divisive, but we're really all the same. It's just life is just different the way it rolls out. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings who love and who hate and who feel all these things. So my 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 show will really um, help people see that we are literally all the same. Hmm. When's your show coming out? That's a great question. We are literally at the time <laughs> of this. Um, we're supposed to be lined up for summer summer lineup uh, for this year for 2021. We because of COVID. We were supposed to actually start filming last November. <laughs> it's not November right now. So I got I get to learn patience and I don't yeah. patience, but that's the lesson I've learned since the time of this filming here in the show. Uh, so like I said, by June 15th, we're supposed to start filming. And if that doesn't happen, then of course we'll have to go for fall. But um, blessings and burdens to happen. Funding has been, everything has been taken care of. It's just hmm. we need more funding that has to be revetted again and the revetting resets the clock. So right. <laughs> you get a blessing and a burden. Uh, so I'm very happy with all the investors and all the people who are, are advertising and a part of a part of this brand. It's, it's been such a blessing. So I'm really looking forward to that. So definitely check out, um, I guess, your local listings for when my show comes out. Lifeology with James Miller. Like I said, very creative name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm super excited to get the book and, uh, and to, um, to watch the show. I just wrapped up my audio book uh, for, for this one's for you. And, you know, I went to, I hired a studio, I went to a professional studio and I had not read my book since it was published. And I tell you, it was, it was tough. I mean, I told the guy that was editing for me, I said, you know, there's going to be times I'm going to have to just shut this down and, and leave. And, Boy, it just kind of, um, it was very beneficial to read it again, but because yeah. I read it 200 times as I was writing it, mm -hmm. but, but uh, I made an F, I told myself if I'm going to do an audio book, it's going to be my voice. Yeah. There's no way I can tell a story. You know, there's no way I can tell a story from the perspective I want it to be from the lens, from the frame that you talked about mm -hmm. with hiring somebody to come in and do it. How, how do you fake that love for your son or the anger of the addiction um, challenge I had? Mm -hmm. And even the personal vulnerability, I talk about my compulsive gambling in my thirties. I mean, here I am a financial advisor yeah. and I'm a compulsive gambler. Yeah. You know, those are things you not put on your resume. And also I was an alcoholic, you know, and, but I built up a multi-million dollar investment firm. So I'm like, that was all great until 50, then boom, you know, the rugs taken out from underneath me and all these skills I learned to build up my practice. Now I had to actually implement them in real life, you know? Yeah. So, um, so, so what's next, what's next for you? 
I mean, you got all, I, I still am amazed on how you do what you do. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'll smoke a mirror. No, I'm kidding. Um, as far as what's, what's next for me, uh, you know, it's just, I, as we all, a lot of people are, are I'm strategic with my planning. And so for me, I've, I've already thought out the third version of, or third season of what the TV show looks like. And then hmm. there, the expansion of that when it comes to a lot of other services I'm providing. And uh, I'm doing a lot of guest spots on, on TV and radio shows coming up. Um, I think I'll be on CBS radio in a couple of weeks and a few other pretty big, big shows. It doesn't matter the size, just shows. Right. So for me, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I'd, I'd love to give back. You know, I love, I'm, I'm always honored to be on any show. So I'm super, super honored that you allowed me to be on your show today, but everything overall, I mean, it's just, it's just how my, my brand gets bigger and bigger. I, you know, talking to a lot of different um, syndication networks. I want to syndicate the radio version, looking at some, um, television networks who wants to do the interviews that I've been doing for the radio version and roll that out for different season for the radio version of the video version, if that makes sense. So it won't be, yeah, yeah. TV show, but like, like your video, the one when you're on my show, which did a fantastic job, by the way, uh, that one Thank will you. go towards, that will go on those, those networks as well. So that's where kind of in, in talks with that. So lots, lots of great things happening. I have a wonderful manager, Stephen O'Connor with Brushwood Media. In fact, he, uh, do you remember, remember Archie Bunker? Yeah, well, of course I do. Yeah. yeah. Carol O'Connor, his nephew, is my is my manager, so Stephen O'Connor. Okay. Fantastic. So he um yeah, so we 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 all have a good time working together. We, he is just like me, he has a really strategic mind too. So it's great to, to work with him. Well, I think I think you and I both are kind of in a time frame where if you have a, a, a passionate cause, I've got this term I like to say, and I it's I say um purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And, and on October 4th, 2016, it got, it got real personal for me. And all of a sudden my purpose became a passion. And so I'm presenting that to people, you know, find your why and you'll find your way, you know, and, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm secular. I I'm, I'm agnostic. So that's one thing that's very interesting about this is my, my close circle of friends, my deepest, closest friends are all, uh, believers and, and, and I'm spiritual. I'm just agnostic. So I think, I think the awesomeness of all this is it doesn't matter what you believe. It's how you behave. Yeah. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And what do you internalize and what were the lessons you learned? Exactly. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, if we can help each other, help other people and you believe in whatever you want to believe, as long as you are a, a good, honest, hardworking, fair person, you know, behavior trumps belief quite often. And unfortunately, that's not what happens. Sure. Yeah. For, yeah, exactly. It's funny. I have uh, my show. I was, I always ask myself, okay, the people that are on my show, I think of people like I have great friends who, who are atheists, great friends who are agnostic. Great. For me, it's, I, I love everybody. Yeah, Except I do too. If you're mean to me, if you're mean to me then <laughs> yeah. but, um, but with that, I always think, you know, when, when I have someone on my show, I ask myself, well, is this an opportunity for everyone, wherever you are, to learn? And is the message audible where it makes sense where people would, would be interested? And mm-hmm. so my goal is to create a narrative in the interview process so that everybody can hear something and, and take away from something because my belief system is mine and theirs mm-hmm. is theirs. And how can we, where's that, where's that intersect where we all can meet together to learn and grow to grow as a, as a community? Um, as listeners to be able to change the world. So that's, that's really how I do it. So I, I think of everyone in all different aspects. I think of the most educated person I know and the person who's least educated, which doesn't mean intelligence, it just means education. And then I look yeah. at different um, 
look at different belief systems, different ethnicities. And so for me, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a good show. So that's how I build my show is to make sure Mm. that everyone listening, it'll affect a greater reach as opposed to being too niched where it only appealed to a certain number of people. So that's kind of the secret, the secret sauce to my show is how do you make it, make your message audible that everybody wants to continue to listen to it. Um, and it makes sense, you know, pushes, not pushes the envelope, but pushes one's belief system to say, oh, just like I said before, with that, um, with that diamond. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I want to learn more yeah. about that. And then the credits roll and my work is done. <laughs> well, I, 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 it got me thinking. I know we got a few minutes. I want to have you out of here. I know you've got a wire day. Um, so two or three minutes, we'll wrap this up. But, you know, the, the Living Undeterred project is so similar to what Lifeology is doing because I go back to my guests. I've had a lady who was sexual, was raped, was sexually molested, became a prostitute, was a cocaine addict, was a felon. She went back to college and now she owns her own uh, aerospace engineering company. Um, I met another girl that was sexually molested by her grandfather. And now she's one of the largest social media influencers out there talking about these things. Mm -hmm. I've met people that have been, you know, just, I've met a dad named Steve Grant who lost his only two sons to heroin overdose You know, I lost one of my three. He lost his only two boys. So, you know, you're right. I didn't want to back in my paint myself in a corner and just talk about, you know, opioid, the opioid crisis. And then all I did every week was just bring on people that just talked about that because I feel compelled that there's more to this story. There's a mental health. There's such a mental health uh, umbrella over all this that, that even in what you're doing has so many aspects of mental health. And so... Um, how do people reach you? What's the easiest way to reach you? Well, once again, thank you so much for allowing, allowing, me, allowing me to be a guest on your show today. I just have to go to jamesmillerlifeology.com and you can reach out with me there. I'm pretty active on Instagram, which is jamesmillerlifeology. Uh, on Twitter, it's jamesmlifeology. And I don't really use Facebook, but James Miller Lifeology. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty standard. <laughs> That's where everybody can reach me there. Well, I think what's awesome is you allow people like me um, to come on your show as kind of a, a as a small voice out here in the Midwest. And um, I, you know, I've never been on a platform as big as yours. And the fact that you actually personally emailed me and took the time to reschedule, uh, you know, we redid our show, your show, because you weren't, you weren't satisfied with the the quality of the show. I would have been fine, probably James, but you, you weren't. And you, you took so much attention to this small story out here that I'm, I'm trying to pay that forward. And now I'm trying to find people that maybe don't have those compelling stories I have, but they, their voice needs to be heard. So, you know, I, I'm grateful that I met you and you are an inspiration to me. And I am, I'm trying to create what you're doing out here in the Midwest and um, hopefully together you and I can help a lot of people. Yeah, well, I'm confident you're doing that. And you know, one thing is, is, well, and first of all, thank you. That's very, very kind of you. I truly appreciate that. The way I look at things is, you know, regardless of one's platform, we all have a life lesson to learn, a life lesson to teach. And so I love, like I said, meeting everybody wherever they are in their life, um, regardless of what platforms they have. You know, if I can give back in any way, that's that's what I love to do. So I'm, I'm always open. And I, I and I appreciate you saying that about the email. That's something I do. I, I really I mean, I get pitched a lot of, you know, a couple hundred pitches a day. So I oh, try yeah. and the ones that are relevant, I, I try and go back. I can't get everybody, but the ones that I'm, I'm interested in, I will go back and I will personally email them myself and, and talk with them about their story, et cetera, and see if it would be a good fit. So 
but I appreciate that. And I know you're doing a fantastic job. I mean, you have you know, such a great show. I've, I've, I've actually been listening to it. So you've done a fantastic job. And I know that regardless of, so just be careful with, with that label of saying a small person because you're in small <laughs> ways. Because be mindful of that. So you're not a small yeah. person. You have a fantastic show and you're going to change the world like you've been doing already. So thank well, you. I appreciate I appreciate being on, on your journey and, and I'm welcoming you to my journey. So uh, have a great rest of your day and thanks for being on the Living Undeterred podcast. And I have no doubt our paths will cross. They certainly will. Thanks again.